I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and noted author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. This week, we talk about subscriptions, specifically how the subscription business model in newspapers struggles while half a billion people are willing to pay subscription fees for music. More in a moment. Will, how are you doing? Been a long week, Richard. Ups and downs, bit of a roller coaster, but nice to kind of do what we do best, wind it all down and reflect on the bubbles and troubles around us. I think we've got a good one this week. We do. And look, I know it's been a sweltering time in London right now, but you're just back from an even more sweltering place, which is Lisbon, where you were the keynote guest speaker at the Fédération Internationale de la Presse Périodique. In other words, the society of all those newspaper publishers invited you to come and talk with them about subscriptions and why there is such a divergent outcome between what newspaper publishers are able to achieve and the music streaming services can achieve. So, Will, I'd love you to talk me through what led you down to that conference, who was the audience, and give me a little background to your presentation. Let's get to the audience first. I think in any industry, you have firms, obviously, but within those firms, you have the departments which compete with one another. That is, perhaps I'm selling cars, Volkswagen, you're selling cars, BMW, we compete for market share in selling cars. But there's also departments that collaborate, these international departments that collaborate with one another to say, look, there's a role for us to put cards on the table here and share best practice. It could be in the analyst world. You compete to sell your research against Morgan Stanley's Ben Swinburne, but there'll be other areas where we collaborate on how do we work out what's the best portal to use for publishing our research. So what FIP was, and I won't attempt the French to spell it out for you, is the international collaborative departments of all these newspapers and magazines. So perhaps you've got uh, Le Monde in France and they want to sell some of their content around the world to other newspapers and magazines. FIP is the Congress where that transaction is done. So it's the international trade fair for competing brands to cooperate, share best practice and share content. That's the basis of the room. That's interesting for an economist because I have a chapter in my book called Self-Interest Versus the Common Good. And this is very much towards the common good and away from self-interest. This is very much let's work it out together as opposed to let's compete and stay apart. And in every industry, globally, you'll find, if you scratch beneath the surface, there are some fairly common standards 
if they haven't been opposed by the regulator, usually the industry comes up with the standards themselves because, for example, we all want interoperability in our technology. We want to make sure different phones can talk to one another and they can all talk to the network. And by having those common standards, it makes the market larger for everybody. Is that what you're saying FIP was working out for the press industry? Yes, although I'll twist your description around a little bit, which is making the market work for everybody. The newspaper and magazine industry is in trouble. And I guess this is where we get to the heart of the conversation. It's in deep trouble. And I guess the purpose of FIP is to, to shrink a little less faster than they're currently shrinking. So <laughs> if we can die slowly, that's a success. But yeah, this industry is in trouble. There's no bones about it. And they're very open about discussing some of the challenges they have. And there were some great presentations about podcasts, exactly what we're doing here. And you had to just think, wait a second, I used to give magazines 40 minutes of my daily life. Now you give podcasts 40 minutes of my daily life. There's tanks on all of their loans and all those tanks getting closer and closer. So this is a really open, collaborative two days in Lisbon. Really enjoyable as well. Met some great people, some inspirational people too. So you dug into two very well-known subscription models, of which I'm a customer of both, the newspapers and music. But they've had such vastly different fortunes. I mean, music, you know, like the back of your hand. How did you come to study newspapers so deeply? And, and what did you learn were the differences between newspapers and music? Well, it was kind of cool because I got to put a beautiful picture of King's Cross up on this huge screen that I was presenting with to kind of show where the parallels are and where they're not. And the point I wanted to make was the thesis of my book, Music Woke Up to Disruption 20 years ago with Napster in America, Winamp in Europe, you're undermining copyright over and upending a business model with no sign of solution. We spent 10 years fighting change, the next 10 years embracing change, the first to suffer, the first to recover. So what is their industry's Napster moment? And the reason why I had this beautiful picture of King's Cross Station was when we rebuilt King's Cross Station, it was a transformation. For those who have never been to the old version of King's Cross Station, it was technically a bit of a shithole. But the new one is a palace, the biggest station in Britain, the biggest concourse in Britain, yet when they opened it, they had no room for a newsagent. And that's your Napster moment. We had room to sell Belgian chocolates, interesting, but we had nowhere to sell newspapers and magazines. Now, Richard, if you think back to the time of the Victorians, train stations and newsagents go hand in hand, hip to hip. You're on a train for four hours, buy something to read. We don't buy stuff to read anymore. We read what's on our phones. And that was a great way to make the entire room sit up and take note of what I was going to say. So then the arc of the story was simply, why is it that music has cracked the code of making people pay for something when it's voluntary to pay? You could unsubscribe from Spotify or Apple today and enjoy music for the rest of your life. It is voluntary to pay, yet we have half a billion people paying. Yet when you look at the newspaper and magazine industry, again, it's voluntary to pay, but a tiny fraction of what music's achieved has been achieved in this world. The numbers are just stark and, to be honest, depressingly low, all things considered. And that's what I wanted to get into with this audience. It wasn't a crowd pleaser, I can tell you that, Richard. But when I think about the difference between brands in news and music, you're talking about Spotify and Apple as distributors of all sorts of sub-brands, the 70 million artists that are on those platforms. Whereas news, there are some very long-established brands that are, as you would say, fighting for survival or relevance today in the market. 
how does things like quality of content play into that? Because when I buy a newspaper like the FT, of which I do pay for regularly, I expect there's going to be a fairly high level of quality. Whereas in my music streaming service, I do expect high quality content, but I know there's also going to be a lot of stuff that, as we know, no one ever listens to, or a few tens of people listen to, not the tens of millions or billions that listen to the top artists. So what you're doing here is smart. You're looking at the nuances, the nuanced differences between this world of music on one side and this world of newspapers and magazines on the other. And I want you and the audience to imagine an image of me holding an apple and a pear. That is, when we compare apples and pears, we know they're not the same. So what can you explain that makes them different? Now, to your point about quality, I'm going to give you three ways of unpacking what makes these two sectors so fundamentally different. And just follow me as we go through step by step here. So one of three is to think about perishability. Now, work this one through. News is perishable. How much would you pay for yesterday's Financial Times? Not a lot. Music is not perishable. How much would you pay to hear the Beatles catalogue on Spotify? $9.99 a month. So the perishability point is interesting. We can take this in different directions, but there's a clear distinction, a clear apples and pears distinction on perishability. Secondly, I want to turn to advertising, which is one of the key drivers of paying for music is to get rid of ads. That's one of the big things about music is you pay, and one of the big plus points is no more ads. Whereas with newspapers and magazines, I pay for The Economist and they flood me with adverts telling me I want to go to Qatar for my holidays. A, that's disruptive, and B, I don't want to go to Qatar for my holidays. So that, for me, is shooting yourself in the foot. How many people would pay for news if you didn't get advertising? And then the third is to your point on quality, which is you talk about the Financial Times like it's a masthead. That's an industry expression I picked up in Lisbon. A masthead is the FT. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're paying for. You just said it yourself. I pay for the Financial Times. When you use your Spotify account, you don't know whether you're paying to access Universal Artists, Warner's Artists, Sony Artists, artists on the biggest banquet label. The masthead, the record label, is invisible and you're agnostic to it. The brand is Spotify and the band is the new album from George Ezra. But the label is not part of that story. And I think that is, again, a really important apples and pears distinction between these worlds. You see quality in the Financial Times. You don't know what is and isn't a quality record label. It doesn't really matter because you're discovering artists on the platform. So just to repack that as you up for you, you have the perishability issue, you have the advertising issue, and you have the brand versus a band issue. And I think I said to the audience when I got going on my presentation, we could spend the whole two days discussing these three points and making sense of them. They're deep. They're deep. I don't know which mm. way it goes, mm. but they're distinct. But when I think about this ads question and something that has always irritated me, I pay for Spotify so that I don't have to hear the ads. And I have experienced the ad-funded Spotify where there's intrusive ad breaks every three songs or something like that. And you just get annoyed with it and you end up doing that as they hope you would, free or freemium to premium conversion. But then when I listen to Spotify original podcasts, I still get ads. And how is that a good user experience? when I, what I thought I was paying in premium was to avoid the ads, and yet I'm still getting It's a them. good point. It's a really good point. This is strong because perhaps we're positioning podcasts as more like a newspaper magazine medium 
Twitch the customer accepts, I'm going to pay for something and still get the disruption of the adverts as opposed to the music experience where it's been set in stone since the 3rd of December 2001 when Rhapsody got its 999 license that when you pay, you don't get adverts. But there's also, there's a back end to that as well, which is selling adverts in music streaming is selling a deterrent. It's a very hard sell to say to a brand, advertise on Spotify so I can really piss my customers off and get them to not listen to your adverts. (laughs) That's a circular sell reference in Excel terminology right there. Whereas when you think about adverts Mm. in the newspaper world, they've pulled off this trick. I don't have to fork on my ad revenue when I get subscribers, but, and this is the big but, the big hairy but, is their subscription audience is one-tenth of music's. So what have you actually achieved Mm. by not giving the convenience to the customer when they're willing to pay for something that is always voluntary to pay? And that's where the discussion got quite heated. But then when I look at the advertising revenues of those publishers, they're vastly larger than the very small advertising revenues Spotify, and we really don't see the advertising revenues of the other platforms. So... There is a much larger propensity of advertisers to pay. And even just this week, I saw a fantastic initiative, which was Brands for News. Brands saying, look, we understand that we can't just block all of our ads running next to news about the Ukraine war. We've had ads running next to unpleasant news stories for a very long time, and it hasn't hurt our brands. It's where people go what they read the the news sites or newspapers for to understand what's going on in the world. And a lot of times that's unpleasant. And we want to make sure we're not dinging the news outlets for providing that sort of content when we know it's a premium audience that's educated and wants to be more educated that's engaging there. So isn't it the case that at least historically, the news industry has done a much better job of sustaining those ad revenues alongside content that may or may not be disturbing, whereas the music industry has really only now just getting started on trying to develop some advertising revenue of its own. So if you look at it from the other way around, the glass in the music industry for ads is still mostly empty. And while it may be a declining portion of our time spent and therefore declining ad revenue pool for the publishers, it's still a heck of a lot larger, isn't it? No. To be frank, no. Okay. N-O spells a big, fat no right there. I, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count a number of cliff-edge illustrations to show what's happened to newspaper and magazine ad spend over the past 20 years. One that I recall, and it may be true, can't verify, but I think it's fallen to pre-1999 levels after adjusting for inflation. It's off a cliff. It's right. off a cliff. And that, by the way, one of the... But still larger than what Spotify would see in its ad revenue. Yeah, yeah, well, let's turn back to, like, in terms of overall success, advertising in Spotify, as I mentioned earlier, it's a means to an end, not an end to a means. And right. it's it, one of the saddest things I learned about the newspaper and magazine industry, once you're speaking to people with pulses, as opposed to reading blogs or on Zoom calls, it's just the sheer amount of redundancy that's taking place in that industry because of the collapse in ad spend, because they couldn't hold their numbers up. Swathes of good, solid middle management, talented people determined to work this problem out, just getting let go over the years. But then just wheel back for a second, because we could lose track of the overall goal, which happened in Lisbon. So it's good that it happens here, which is 
Whatever you say about ad spend, whatever you say about ad RPU, whatever you say about what newspapers and magazines still get right or perhaps get a little wrong, just go back to the numbers. The Economist celebrated 100,000 gross new subscribers in 2021. Interesting. There's a record. 100,000 new people are paying for The Economist that we are going to assume, but cannot prove, they've never paid before. Spotify or Apple or YouTube, it wouldn't be that uncommon for them to add that number of subscribers in one single day. That's a fair comment. That's objective. Secondly, the Financial Times are boasting about reaching a million subscribers. I can tell you now, Spotify reached a million subscribers in April 2009, and we didn't even have an HR department back then. Which is interesting that 2022, a big broadsheet title says one million is a sign of success. Is it when a small startup can achieve the same in a much smaller country, Sweden and Norway at that point? And then thirdly, just looking at the population of people paying for quality journalism in America, very hard to measure. You have people paying for more than one account, which is something we can get into in part two. But roughly speaking, I think 15 million would be a generous figure. That is, America's got 340 million people, 15 million of them are willing to pay for news. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal being the big three titles. Joe Rogan employs four people in his team, and he's reaching more people than the entire quality journalism industry of the United States of America. That merits a pause for thought. Mm. He has no schedule commitments, mm. no time frequency restrictions. He can do whatever he wants with his team of four people and get to more than 15 million people. You think about the overheads, the unions, the fixtures and fittings, the buildings, the infrastructure, and they're getting to less than 15 million people over in old media world. So it's, that's the distinction. You've got to come up for air and keep checking yourself and saying, the numbers on the newspaper magazine side are just way too small. And the numbers on the music side are just impressively big. And they're both voluntary to pay. So what is it with this apple on one side and this pear on the other, which means, which explains this gap, which explains this divergence in fortunes. So I'd love to get to that as we're wrapping up part one here and hear your thoughts on pricing, because I know that was a big part of your presentation and a big part of your thought process. And here we are, given a impossibly low, hasn't changed in 20 years, $10 a month price for an ever-expanding pool of music that we can dig into. It, it just grows all the time. There's more and more than, more than we could ever possibly hear. And all of the stuff that we hark back to and it still costs the same as that Napster moment you said 20 years ago when they set the $10 price point. Mm -hmm. And yet you presented compellingly, in my view, a bewildering array of subscription options for all of the different leading titles, all of which I think we're going to talk in the second half about substitutability. I may want to have some or all of those at any given time, but none of them seem to have that simple one-size-fits-all pricing that gives me everything that I want and more, all that back library of stuff I might want to look up in the past that was in the FT or the New York Times or The Economist for one low monthly price. Why is that? What does the publishing industry need to learn from the music industry about pricing? Let me give you a teaser before we go to the break, and for sure we can dig in deep in part two, but if you go back to Steve Jobs launching the iTunes download store in 2003, back when newspapers and magazine prospects were a lot rosier than they are now, I don't think there was any econometric formula behind 99 cents for a download. I don't think there was any BCG or McKinsey consultants brought in to say, what's the optimal price? It's a charm price. 99 cents for a song. It's not even a dollar. It's charming. 
it resonates. It's got nothing to do with economics, everything to do with psychology or just general marketing. I think there's something to be said for 9.99 as another charm price. It's not even 10 bucks. The numbers fail to hit round figures. So it's not for the economist to answer this question. It's for common sense to answer this question, which is, is a, an awful lot that can be said for charm pricing, which trades off against a lot of the more complex pricing we can discuss in part two that you see the newspapers and magazines pursue. I think price is the dilemma that needs to be dealt with right now in that industry if they do want to avoid this sinking ship from going under. Terrific. And as you sometimes say about me, and I get a bit embarrassed, I, I do feel right now like I'm the, the humble student listening to the professor. And I'm sure there were a lot of publishing executives lost in Lisbon listening to you hector them about the demise of newspapers, but then dangle in front of them the charm pricing of $9.99 or less that might save their industry. We'll be back after the break to dig into that and to hear what sort of smoke signals or advice you had for all those publishing executives. Okay, we're back for part two of Bubble Trouble, talking about subscriptions in newspapers and music, the differences and opportunities. And I'm here with the noted professor, Will Page, who's just fresh off addressing a room full of publishers in Lisbon, depressing them about the fate of their industry and giving them hope about the future with the notion of charm pricing. So, Will, talk us through pricing models and how these leading publishers have dropped the ball, really, in terms of getting more and more people to sign up for their services where music has clearly succeeded. Well, I'm going to use the term stop shooting yourself in the foot here because when you're dealing with an audience of this caliber, of this stature, of this many parts of the world all in one room together, this is a really international audience, and you want to present bad news, you have to do it in a way that doesn't scare them away, which is stop shooting yourself in the foot. The mistakes I'm now going to walk you through, Richard, are unnecessary mistakes. Nobody's forcing you to make them. Maybe some consultancy is telling you to make them because they think that's a good idea, but it's not a good idea. And you're about to learn why. So I'm going to give you a handful of examples of pricing strategies that I've seen. We're doing audio content here, but we have to think with our eyes, not our ears here. I would give a pricing promotion at best 30 to 45 seconds of my attention, and then I move on. That's a typical marketing estimate. So my first one was one unnamed newspaper title, which said, best value, annual offer, 52 pounds for 52 weeks, then 14 pounds 99 per month thereafter. Join now, you can cancel any time. Now my point here is, if you're gonna do a promotion, it usually means more for less. That is a big number is followed by a small number. 52 for 52 is the same for same. It doesn't tell me that's a promotion. So please just 52 pounds for 55 weeks. Just get the numbers right here so it actually sounds like a promotion. Second one, FT in this instance. They say FT print edition delivered Monday to Saturday along with an e-paper, 50 pounds for three months, introductory offer, then 75 pounds every three months. It already gets quite worrisome going through this. Now, if you're trying to capture me in 30 seconds of attention, what is an e-paper? I'm going to take three minutes to try and figure that out, and I'm lost. Is it digital, or is it not? Or is it a paper with a letter E on it? I'm just confused. Speak to me in language that makes me engage. Third example, I think this is the Times newspaper here. Digital with print, 
digital access and the newspaper for £1.71 a day. Stop. Bubble Trouble audience, stop you in your tracks for a second. Where in the law of charm pricing does £1.71 sit? The first thing you're telling me is, do you have enough small change to pay for it? Secondly, are you trying to tell me that every day, so 30 times every month-ish, there'll be £1.71 deductions in my bank statements? No, you're not. I get it. You're not saying that. But you are saying that. And I don't have more than 30 seconds to see anything else. You just told me you're going to charge £1.71 every single day. Then finally, and my favourite one, then try saying this after three pints of strong gassy lager, Richard. This was a Daily Telegraph. <clears throat> Clear my throat. One pound for three months. Enjoy one month free, then two months for just 50 pence each. Cancel any time. Start your free trial. Digital subscriptions build at £12.99 per month or an annual option exists. So I'm seeing five numbers in this promotion. But the word free is really bold, highlighted in yellow in the middle of the advert. This is not how to price products. This is a deterrent for a business that's in trouble. And this worries me. So you're basically saying, back to charm pricing, the last thing you want to force a user to do is whip out their calculator <laughs> and try to unpack what you're, you're actually charging them. Now, there is also a very interesting pending piece of legislation in Europe, and it's likely to come to the States as well, which is designed to make it as easy to cancel subscriptions as it is to sign up for them. And certainly one of the things that I think you can get to next is these free offers. Hey, it sounds great. I can get this free for three months and then I can cancel it and then I can sign up again. Yeah. So basically you're just encouraging people to churn and take the free offer. Hey, wouldn't I like this for free for three months? And then you know what? I'll just cancel if they make it easy for me. And then I'll re-up with a different email account because most of us actually have three or four more email addresses. So aren't we just inviting churn when you make it impossibly good, too good to be true in the first instance, but then try to hit someone with a $12.99 per month or whatever it was per day down the road? Absolutely. So you've got two bads chasing no good here. Firstly, you've got a pricing strategy that doesn't get that many people in. Uh, secondly, of those who come in and pay it, you create an incentive model to churn by default, which is, I'll just do subscription hopping was the industry term I heard. So I wrote a joke which goes like this, which is, did you hear that New York Times bought The Athletic for $50 million? To which you say to me, but didn't they buy it for $550 million? To which I say, oh, sorry, I was thinking of next month's headline because the company was running out of cash. But the point there is, it's very hard for the New York Times to say, we've acquired 2.4 million new subscribers. When A, there could be some overlap there. Those people paying for The Athletic are already paying for the New York Times. But B, they're not sustained subscribers. The vast majority of them, a huge majority of them, will be subscription hopping, which is bailing out and going back in. It's almost like part of the conversation mm. when you discuss The Athletic is, yeah, I've never paid for it in three years. I just keep on coming out the deal and going back in again. You don't want that mm. narrative in a subscription product. You want trust and you want loyalty. And newspapers and magazines have done a lot of damage through their pricing to both those two concepts. And, and just to reflect on one thing we've talked about before in Bubble Trouble in our episodes on culture and, and management is, would this just be a function of organizational incentives where there's a department called the subscription department who's incentivized on the sheer number of people they can get in the door 
so that they can hand the chief executive a piece of paper at the end of the quarter that says, this is your net new subscriber number. And for them, the problem of those subscribers churning off is somebody else's problem in accounting or finance or somewhere else in the organization. When you've just handed some user acquisition kid that you hired out of college uh, a, a, a hand grenade to roll into the to the to the boardroom, saying, "I'm going to blow up your subscriber <laughs> number so you have something to shout to the rooftops about." Um, well, there's an expression in the music business which dates back from the CD vinyl era, which is I don't know if you know this one, Richie, but it goes, "Ship platinum, receive gold." Have you ever heard that expression? No. So it means the record label, desperate to get its certification that is platinum status, sell a million records in the United States would ship a million records. So I've shipped platinum, I've got my certification, I get my bonus payment. Right. Then gold, half a million, come back to the factory gate. And there's a huge cost in destroying unwanted records. There's a whole copyright issue that goes on there too. But I think what you're alluding to there is a little bit of ship platinum, receive gold mentality. I got all these subs in the door, but <laughs> barely 50% of them are sticking around. That's not the point. I got all these subs through the door. So what do you do? Do you optimize for getting people on the boat or plugging the leaks that are already prevalent inside the boat? That's a challenge they have. So I want to move on to another point you made, which I think is fascinating, about this notion of, of compliments and substitutes. And you have a lovely analogy for this that I want to draw out. But when I think of music, the problem I've got with some of these music services is that all of them have basically the same product. And yeah, there's a couple of exclusives on one platform or another. But almost all of them would tick the box of having the music I listened to in high school or the music I'd want to look at and listen to for my the dance party I'm having or whatever mood I'm in. They're going to have the same classical composers or funk composers or whomever, whatever pop hits there are, they'll all effectively have the same mm -hmm. catalog to offer. But when I think of news, there's a lot of different news outlets I, I pay attention to each individually, and there's no place I can go to get all of that news aggregated in a way that I've paid one low price to read what I might want to on Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the Guardian, the New York Times, and so forth. All of those I might have read or engaged with today, along with a couple specialist sites. Yeah, so this is where, for not just the audience at FIP, and a shout out to Cobus, James, Ulia and the whole team there, but also the Independent News Media Association, INMA, for another acronym, Earl and the team over there as well, is to discuss cross-usage. And you're right. I mean, the music services are all selling the same plain vanilla ice cream, the same 80 million songs, at the same plain vanilla price point, 9.99 sterling euro dollars. There's no distinction there. So if you're going to pay for Apple Music, you ain't going to pay for Spotify, Amazon, or YouTube. And if you're going to pay for Spotify, you ain't going to pay for Apple, Amazon, or YouTube. We know that in video streaming, exclusive content makes it very attractive to pay for Netflix and even more attractive to pay for Disney Plus as well. They are gin and tonic complementary goods. Whereas in music, we're different mm. brands of gin. Now, what I want to do with the audience at FIP and uh, Inma and these newspapers and magazines who are in a distressed state, I mean, it's, I'm not schadenfreude here, I want to help them, is actually, mm. I think you're more complementary than you give credit for. So the example I gave is the Wall Street Journal which I would imagine if you asked all of their staff and their C team, they would say, without doubt, we compete with the New York Times. You know, who's your biggest competitor for attention shares? The New York Times. Either you buy the New York Times or you buy the Wall Street Journal. 
So I used this fantastic company, Sensor Tower. Salman Chajroy and the team there did some great work with me to look at App Overlap, which asked the question, when you're using the Wall Street Journal app, what other news app are you most likely to use? So you might have two apps up and running at once. You might have two taxi apps up and running at once to try and hail that taxi faster. And the answer to the audience's amazement was the New York Times. So it might be the case that if I can get Richard Kramer, who pays for no news, to pay for the Wall Street Journal, it is more likely that he will pay for the New York Times and vice versa. And that's a huge discovery to share with this audience who are desperate for light at the end of their tunnel, is you may, may, may just be growing each other's gardens, but you haven't thought about it yet. But, but one of the issues, certainly, and I've spoken with many of these organizations about how they unify their own approach towards their content being used and redistributed on big tech platforms like Google and Facebook and others, is they're very sensitive to the accusation that they're behaving in a, as a cartel, that they're, be, they're colluding with one another, that they would be um, cooperating somehow, because obviously they have a proud tradition of competing with each other to get the scoops, to get the, the exclusive interviews of the first breaking story. And unfortunately for them, they're in a world where many, many other organizations will glom on to their stories and rewrite them and present them as their own. Now, I saw something this morning. There was a breaking news article from Reuters, for example, and I saw exclusive on Yahoo and the same headline. So they shamelessly copied what a Reuters journalist, whether they got the scoop or not, I don't know, or how they got it, that someone had gone to the work of delivering the content and everybody else just stole it shamelessly. So how do these companies that are so used to competing with each other that have been diminished, really, by the speed at which their content is copied and, and reprinted across the web and been disintermediated because we all use a Google search or a Facebook news feed or some other aggregator site to direct us to what content is interesting, how do they figure out a way to cooperate with each other and bundle the range of quality news sources that I, for one, would be happy to pay a, a meta subscription for. I'd be happy to get the equivalent of, of a Spotify or YouTube music or Apple music for news if I knew I was going to be able to get snippets of quality journalism from across the political spectrum, from across, from culture to finance to, to all sorts of, to sports, to all sorts of areas that I'm interested in and, and get it for one low price every month. I think you've got two points we got to unpack there. Firstly, on Facebook and Google, the relationship they have with mm. the newspaper and magazine industry, which is a little fraught, but also a little bit confused. Then secondly, I just want to echo an argument you put forward, which is I'd be willing to pay for a Spotify of news and gives me the option value to explore all this content. You know, have my credit card, we're good to go. But let's do Facebook and Google first. It's clear there's some legal policy-like tension between the newspapers, News Corp, especially on one side, Facebook and Google on the other side. But there's also a high degree of reciprocity in that the ad teams mm. inside these newspapers are heavily dependent on Facebook and Google to make their numbers. And there's also some confusion about when you use Facebook and Google, how much of that use case, how much of that utility comes from being able to access news. I think the newspapers and magazines estimate it to be a lot higher than it actually is. And there's some great stuff on Neiman Lab where you can 
check out online, mm-hmm. just where the newspaper industry is staring itself in the face saying, we're perhaps not that big a contributor to Google's revenues. But that's a tense topic, but just to stress, mm-hmm. there's, you know, us and them mentality, but there's also underneath that a high degree of reciprocity that you cannot ignore. And then to your point, I mean, if we think about joining a gym, perhaps the value of Spotify is the Financial Times is the treadmill, the New York Times is the weights, the Wall Street Journal is a rowing machine, and the Guardian is one other feature. Let me think about a chin-up chin bar. bar. Thank you. Guess who used the gym most recently? Not me. Maybe I want to use a treadmill. We have one option to use a rowing machine, but nobody's given me that option value, which the music streaming services cracked for a charm price, which is you don't know what you want to explore. Maybe you hate jazz, but once you're on this platform and there's a curated playlist for you, you might learn how to love jazz. Maybe you have no idea what sleep music is worth, but how much value would you place on a good night's sleep? It's there. There's no friction in experimenting with it. And that, that option value is missing from their proposition. That goes back to the point we raised in part one, which is in use, you pay for the masthead, in music, you don't. The platform, the brand mm. is bigger than the masthead, the band in this case. And that's, that's, mm. that takes some swallowing for this industry, which is so proud of its mastheads, yet so worried about their subscriber numbers. And is that just a fact that the, the likes of the music services have, are playing the role as aggregators because they're aggregating what in the end is such an incredibly disparate range of brands. And you think of every band as its own brand. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and they, they'll brand their music, whether it's heavy metal or punk or disco or pop or funk or jazz or classical. They're all within these genres. They all have their own brands and sub-brands, but there is no aggregator role being played in news in the same way. Yes, many of the newspapers that we'll read will have reports from wire services as well as their own journalists, but there isn't someone to aggregate all of the interesting news there isn't one site you can go to which is aggregating all of the potential news brands you might like to engage with for one low price. Is that what you think needs to happen to save the newspaper industry? Could they have half a billion subscribers to news as well if I could go one place and just make sure I had at any given time a fire hose of all the interesting news outlets in the world curated for me? Long answer short, yes. If you're not selling convenience, you're offering friction. And that just digs your own grave faster than you ever needed to dig it in the first place. And the convenience that's offered elsewhere, it just leaves newspapers look very, very antiquated in their business model. And to repeat, there are people who say, I'm making a profit or I'm making my numbers, or, I'm making my headlines. But I still look at that model and say, how is it that Joe Rogan with four people in his team down in Austin, Texas, can get to more people than the entire newspaper subscriber population of the United States of America. Mm. The numbers mm. are just pitifully slow. And let's just do a little history lesson here. 20 years ago, 20 million British people paid for newspapers. Now it's less than two. So that's your addressable mm. market from an historical context. How do we get it back up to 20 again? How do we 10x that figure? Well, there's some lessons from music. And I think the one you allude to is the best one. Just take the friction out and keep the option value in. And 20 years ago, how many people in Britain were paying for music of one form or another, typically buying CDs or maybe 30 years ago buying vinyl, and now today they'd be paying subscriptions? I would say 10, 15 million people buying CDs, spending on average 50, 50 bucks a year, three CDs, maybe a couple of gifts at Christmas. Was, I can't verify the figures live on the pod, but it just gives you a tone of more people pay for news than pay for music. It needn't be the case that 10 times as many people pay for music that pay for news. 
Yeah, we could level these scales okay. up again. Let's get to our favorite I'm part. Smoking. Oh, by the way, I learned a great expression today about smoking, not smoke signals, which is the reason why vinyl is growing so massively in this country is because you can't roll a spliff on an MP3 file. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know whether we'll have to edit that out of the podcast or not, but we'll see. I put but it in my anyhow, mouth, but I didn't inhale, yeah. just for the record. Okay. There you go. So let's get to our smoke signals. The cautionary tales, the things that made you go, uh-uh, when you were down there in Lisbon at the Fédération de Internationale de la Presse Publique. What were, what were the things you heard from, obviously, some extremely senior executives running very large and august organizations that made you worry, that made you go, uh-uh, this is not going to work out. I think my first flame to burn on this smoking session is the term fact-checking. So newspapers and magazines will frequently cry out from the top of their voices, we do quality news, we do quality journalism. Quality journalism doesn't happen cheap. A few points here. One, you don't pay your journalists that much. So it might cost you a lot of money, but they're not seeing that much money. You know, there's a good argument for journalists today to explore Substack and just do it themselves, like so many artists are doing. Nobody wants to discuss that in Lisbon. Surprise, surprise. But it's happening. And then secondly, if you're saying you do quality journalism, that's your, that's your ace card to play in this debate. Well, where's the fact-checking? And other than the FT, and it was a real honor to have Brooke Masters, who, by the way, is knocking out the park on the FT right now with some of her latest work. I know they have fact-checkers, but I don't know how many other newspapers do fact-checking. And I would suggest that the majority probably don't bother anymore. And certainly for your standard pieces, just to kind of wrap this one up for you, Richard, there's a recent piece in Reuters about Spotify building a council to discuss content moderation. And a journalist based in America said, the panel of experts will be drawn from places such as the University of Gothenburg in Germany. So I had to write back and say, guys, for an article about a Swedish company, that's got to be worth a correction, which they duly did. But just under the hood, I don't think the claim to quality journalism is all that robust if you're not deploying fact checkers. And to stress our exceptions, the Financial Times is a big positive one. But I think a lot of people have fired their fact checkers. And when you fire fact checkers, you fire a lot of your own credibility too. But I guess one of the, to, to f- damp down the smoke and, or maybe fan the flames. Yes, <laughs> poetic, you've heard a lot poetic, about Substack and, and you've heard a lot about citizen journalism. And I read the very inspiring book by the founder of Bellingcat, which has done some amazing work doing forensic digital investigative journalism. And I have a lot of respect for my friend Jesse Isinger, who was on the podcast uh, with a fantastic investigation into IRS files and what billionaires pay or actually don't pay in taxes, uh, working for ProPublica. But a lot of these organizations, unfortunately, they rely on donations. They rely on support. And that is not a viable model. And there are very few journalists, it seems, that have the the brand themselves to go out on Substack and and find a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand people to support them and support them individually. But that doesn't help for these collective investigations that require, as Jesse and his team have done, going through treasure troves of documents that the equivalent of the Panama Papers leak out of the IRS. And that's just for 25 billionaires over a decade. I know, so how do you think about supporting this vital function? We all agree it's a vital function when it's not just going to work if it's, you know, just coming from 
donations. Yeah, so it's a whole rabbit hole to get into at the end of a pod, but just very, very briefly on this before we get smoking up number two here, but just think about the impact of The Guardian. Quality newspaper with quality journalism explicitly saying it's voluntary to pay. What does that do to the market for those saying, you got to pay for this because we've got to support these journalists? I mean, The Guardian has a pension fund. I believe it's based in the Cayman Islands and that might help with their voluntary pricing strategy just a little bit. But still, it's a very strange signal for the quality journalism industry to send to a huge audience, which is, it's a donation-based model. But I want to get smoking number mm. two, Rich. I got the best one. Hit me with the second smoke signal, something that really made you sit up and go, wait a second, at Lynn Lisbon. It's winbacks. And what I mean by that is, we know that subscription is a problem. Very few people are willing to pay for news. We know that churn is a massive problem of those who pay many leave. And it's a strategy for how they win them back. And this is my personal example verifiable from The Economist. Now, I've paid for The Economist since puberty, literally, okay? So recently I churned. You were a strange adolescent, <laughs> Will. You were a very strange adolescent. Most people are reading their mother's bra catalog at that age, but I read The Economist, okay? But so uh, I've been paying for The Economist for a long time. I recently churned, okay? I was unhappy with the product. The new app sucked. They were flooding me with adverts. Britain was at the end of the section as opposed to the front. They should have fixed that a long time ago. Lots of issues. They weren't fixing them, so I churned. So this is their win-back strategy. Let's wrap up the pod on this one. So they give me this win-back strategy. They say, okay, Will, we're going to offer you this. Digital and print edition of The Economist, annual for £107.50, charm price for the first year. Okay? Or digital and print editions of The Economist for three years for £519. <laughs> £100 for one year or £500 for three. Now, Richard, where in the law of taxi pricing does the second mile cost more than the first? So if you've got a problem with subscription and you've got a bigger problem with churn, trust me, you've got an even bigger problem trying to win those lost subscribers back. So your basic point, back to something we discussed earlier in the pod, is you don't want to have to whip out your calculator. You don't know what the, or you weren't told what the actual price not the introductory price was. And I'll tell you, Will, I get the print edition of The Economist delivered to my door every Friday. It just came through the door this morning for a heck of a lot less than £100 a year. So there are plenty of deals to be had, and there's not consistent pricing. And I don't know why I'd pay for a premium because I it's not as easy to take it out to the garden and read it while I'm sitting in mm -hmm. the sun. So it seems to me that this whole industry has to go back to basics and understand how they price and what their offer or what their discussion with the consumer is and make that super simple, not just try to get people back in the door. Uh, is that a good back summary? Back to basics and stop paying parasitical consultants who make your problem worse. That one was endemic in this business. A hundred percent. And I've always wondered from an investment point of view, if I could get the client list of McKinsey, I would have a great short portfolio <laughs> because if the companies weren't super troubled already to call McKinsey in, then in the end, they would be more troubled after they'd had them in than when they no started. No one's going to dispute that correlation so, uh, and causation, Richie, baby. All right. And with that, we'll bring a fascinating episode of Bubble Trouble to a close. I'd like to thank Will for sharing his fascinating presentation on publishing and, and subscription economics between music and, and newspapers. And we'll be back next week with another wonderful episode of Bubble Trouble. Thanks, Will. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.